Okay, thanks guys for coming today. Um, you, I think you got a, a brief glimpse of Professor Maciej Henneberg uh, in yesterday's lecture. So he's our visiting scholar for the next month or so. We've got him here on loan from University of Adelaide, and he's also an international fellow of UBBO. So, so we had him here for a little while last year, and it's great to have him back again. Um, overarching interest is in human evolution, but uh, that includes living populations and long past populations. So uh, by the looks of things today, we'll be looking at some uh, comparative work for living populations. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, but he's very well known for his forensics work, um, for his archaeological work, particularly in Pompeii. We've been back in yes, Pompeii yes, again recently. Yes, yes. And uh, you might be on the lookout for one of his more recent works, which is The Hobbit Trap, which explores a controversy surrounding a purported new species that was discovered um, in Indonesia a few years ago and that Maché got into a great academic debate about the, um, the politics and the motivation surrounding that, uh, that find. Um, so I just started, it looks to be very good reading. But uh, today he's talking about alanine transaminase as a better marker than sociocultural factors for body mass increase uh, in 46,000 Swiss conscripts. Thank you, Carla. It's a pleasure to be back here. <laughs> uh, and you may wonder what does it have to do with evolution. And there are a few readings on the handout about recent human evolution. But I'll explain this at the end. Uh, and this is a result of, as you see, cooperative work with uh, docent as they have this kind of designation in Switzerland, Frank Rudy, Philipp Gruber, and Ulrich Wojtek from Germany, who is now in Zurich. So I was actually trying last year in September to establish a little branch of the unit for obesity in Zurich, and they are quite interested in it. There is a debate about causes and cures for obesity. Are these causes, and therefore the cures, socioeconomic or are there biological causes underlying people gaining weight? I don't see the socioeconomic approach is that people are glutinous that people are lazy and don't exercise enough. And uh, public health policies thus far aimed at uh, removing obesity or fighting obesity failed. They're ineffective. The body weight on average in most populations is still increasing. And obviously, as usual with any human ailment, it became a field for money-making. There are various diets, some very good, some not so good, but people buy them anyway, because in the population, the knowledge about the multiple causes of obesity is not that strong. So there are those diets advertised that says, the more you eat, the thinner you become. And <laughs> so if you, I'm not recommending watching ads on television, but if you watch ads, you'll see these things, and some people pay expensive gym memberships, so they drive to a gym, then they pay a fee, then they get on a bicycle in the gym on the ergometer, 
they do a little bit and they get into their car and drive home and sit in front of television. Uh, we all know that there are biological differences amongst humans. But each one of us is different. In body size, in physiological parameters, and therefore there may be biological differences between or amongst humans in susceptibility to obesity. And maybe therefore we should design individualized therapies for specific cases of obesity rather than just tell everybody to eat less and exercise more, which doesn't work. Hmm? Okay. I already said that each person is different. We may differ biologically in our susceptibility for obesity. Besides obvious pathologies, very little was done in this regard. And actually, the first work that is now under revision in the journal, American Journal of Human Biology, was done here at Oxford just before the unit was organized by Stanley Yashek and I in 2006, where we showed that, and I was giving a talk about it last year in this room, where we were showing that, or we are showing, that depending on lean body shape, people have more or less fat on their bodies. So what we are saying is the person who has big skeleton for the trunk, so white bony pelvis, white uh, rib cage, <coughs> usually has more fat on her body than person of the same body height who has narrow rib cage and narrow hips. Uh, this is probably mediated, this hypothesis, probably mediated by the size of the gastrointestinal system. Some individuals, same body height, have gastrointestinal system twice the size of other individuals. This is the somatotype. Somatotype is, is another questionable concept, but that's what it is. We can show, um, amongst other things, a professor of anatomy, <laughs> teaching anatomy to medical students. And you can show in the, in the dissection room the, the huge differences in the size of the stomach and the total volume of intestines. There is obviously a biochemical variation, and we know bits of it, like type 1 diabetes, who, that usually ends in obesity anyway, and increased body weight, whereas the hyperthyroidism, another variant of uh, physiology, uh, prevents people from gaining a lot of fat. Uh, and I think the best way at the moment is to say that obesity is a result of a combination of biological variation and lifestyle. But the question that has not been yet answered is how much each contributes. And obviously social anthropologists would like the lifestyle to contribute more than biological variation. So biological anthropologists, uh, I'm not saying we prefer that biological variation would contribute a lot, but uh, we pay more attention to biological variation. And we think that specifics should be targeted to cure the general problem of obesity. Telling everyone to eat less and exercise more, as I said, does not work. It works for some people, but doesn't work for others. It probably embarrasses 
in private conversations about socializing, you'll find those people say, you know, I got to a gym for 10 years and I was always on the diet and look at me and, uh, and so on. Uh, identifying people at spatial risk of obesity in each environment is possible. And that's what we came up with when talking about the body frame size. And if we first identify individuals who are at spatial greater than average risk of obesity and then explain to those people that they are spatial and they have to look after themselves more than others, we hope maybe this will work because people like to feel spatial, people like to have an explanation why they are at the risk of obesity. We all are. If we all consume 4,000 calories a day and do nothing physically, we all will be fat. But other than that, we can tell, look, you have this specific problem, you are not obese yet, but watch out, you really have to look after yourself. Uh, and uh, eventually, which at the moment is very far off, maybe one should really apply chemotherapy for metabolic disorders of the type less obvious than diabetes or hyperthyroidism. And here I would like to bring an analogy with sexually transmitted diseases. One of the studies we do in Pompeii is the study of the origins of syphilis. And uh, with sexually transmitted diseases, we all know by the name of the disease that unless you have sex, you don't get the disease. It's as simple as that. Or nearly as simple. And since biblical times, because part of the scriptures actually tells people what to do not to have sex with, with too many others and so on and so forth, since biblical times, people understood that being promiscuous increases risk of catching a sexually transmitted disease. Those sexually transmitted diseases were present and reasonably well known in the classical antiquity and everybody was telling everybody else to avoid the disease, don't have casual sex. And what happened? In 19th century, 10% of people in Europe had syphilis. So preaching did not work, and it usually doesn't. Whereas when the first chemotherapy, salvarsan, was introduced in the 1920s, syphilis practically disappeared, and when the penicillin and other antibiotics were introduced after World War II, syphilis became a reasonably rare disease. Now it's coming back because they're drug-resistant forms. And there can be an analogy made with obesity. We preach to people to keep their weights down, but with most people it doesn't work. They'll still go and have sex. <clears throat> How to identify a biological risk of obesity? Because obesity has multiple etiologies, <coughs> a single cause, whichever it is, biological or social, Single cause will probably not show up as having a lot of effect on body weight. Because there, there's a number of various things contributing. 
And therefore, we need large surveys of metabolic parameters. And we require samples of people that are unbiased in any way. For example, metabolism changes with age. And therefore, we should have people of the same age group studied. And th such surveys, large sample, unbiased, are difficult to run because, first of all, of ethical requirements. We can't force anybody to be measured in whatever way. If people don't want to disclose their body weight, they have a right to keep their weight down. Or they have the right to keep their weight secret. Uh, and uh, therefore, if we call for volunteers, because of social prejudice against obesity, we will have a sample that is biased towards lower body weights. Because the people who are actually obese or overweight sometimes will choose not to participate. Uh, so I can try for volunteers, but military approach works better. And we happen to have access to the military material. Switzerland, as one of the last few <coughs> bigger countries in the world and in Europe has army conscription. All males age 19 or close to 19 must report to seven national conscription centers and they have no choice in it. Only those who are very seriously ill so that they cannot walk, for example, will be exempt and those who have a good reason to reside overseas will be exempt until they come back. Otherwise, everyone must go. Um, oh, sorry. And therefore, we had available for study information on 101,000 male conscripts of all Swiss cantons, that is on the map. Uh, and these were three years of conscription, and it reflected 83% of all Swiss male citizens in their age cohort. So it's not a sample, it's actually the entire, practically the entire population of a particular age and sex. In this study, we included only 19 and 20 years olds who had complete information regarding all variables of interest. So all biological and all socioeconomic variables. And thus, the sample size was reduced to just 46,000. Uh, Swiss armed forces require mandatory multi-day recruitment and their identical qualitative standards for technical equipment organization as defined by Swiss armed forces regulations applied in all seven national centers. And the tests consist of blood sample taking, body measurements, height, weight, and a number of physical tests, like for example, how far a person can run within 12 minutes, and a few other things, and a psychometric test, which we did not use here. <coughs> but, so that's our sample now. All sectors of economy are represented Sorry about the, the small writing here, but what is important is this. Number two, people participating in industrial production are quite a large group. There's still a lot of watchmaking and so on. Uh, 
and university students, number 10. But there are obviously people in other categories, people working in agriculture, number one, and in construction and mining, quite a bit, and number five, tradesmen. The socioeconomic status is measured according to international norm, ISCO 88. Number one are legislators, senior officials, and managers. Number two are professionals. We are dealing here with young people, 1920, so there are not that many full-blown professionals amongst them yet. Uh, number three, technicians and associate professionals. Number four, clerks, more. Number five, service workers and salespeople in shops and so on. Number seven, craft and related trades, a lot of tradespeople. Number eight, plant and machine operators. And number 10, university students. So as you see, we have the whole cross-section through the society. Uh, religions. Nearly half and half Catholic and Protestant, and quite a lot of non-religious people and a few <coughs> other religions. Language. The dominant language in Switzerland, as you know, is German, followed by French and Italian. And there are districts where French and uh, German are mixed. So yet again, we have various languages which indicate differences in culture and the lifestyle as well. So we have, we have a good cross-section. Please don't be intimidated by this data table. It's just to illustrate how much information we had. The variables measured that we used here. Body height, body weight, body mass index, systolic, diastolic blood pressure, cholesterol, creatinine, adenine um, transferase, which is of our special interest, postprandial glucose, thrombocytes, leukocytes, neutrophiles, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophiles, basophiles, erythrocytes, and hemoglobin are all various parameters derived from blood tests. <coughs> Uh, mean body height, 178, is quite okay for European people. Uh, 73 kilo as well, quite normal. And therefore, average body mass index is 23, which falls squarely into the midst of the so-called normal range. And the rest of the parameters are also fairly normal. Actually, we are now working on another paper where we will produce new standards for those physiological and blood test parameters because we have such a big sample of young, largely healthy people. So how much do social variables contribute? As that was our major interest. Uh, we used two methods, analysis of variance and stepwise multiple regression. And I'll mostly use stepwise multiple regression because uh, results support each other and it's easier to see. Social category, which was uh, legislators, students, tradespeople, uh, contributes 1% of the total variance in body mass index. This is the 
variation in body mass index as explained by those various factors. The social category contributes 1% and the economic sector added another one-tenth of a percent. Therefore, 99% of body mass index is not related to socioeconomic status, it is not related to um, economic group in which people work. Uh, other socioeconomic variables, that is language and religion, contributed so little in ANOVA that they were not picked up as significant contributors by stepwise multiple regression. And I think it's a very important result because, as I showed you, we had a full scale of both socioeconomic status and uh, economic participation from simple agricultural workers and tradespeople to university students and professionals and legislators. And we are a bit surprised that language contributes so little because obviously different cultures, French, German, can, and they do have different cuisines and different eating habits and so on. Actually, we did another paper that I don't talk about. It has been already published. This was medical journal showing that French people have higher levels of cholesterol. French speaking. Now, we put the rest of the variables into the same analysis. And what happened, which was a bit of a surprise to us, <coughs> alanine transaminase enzyme contributed nearly 14% to the variance of body mass index. And the same in analysis of variance, the greatest explained sum of squares from the total sum of squares was explained by alanine transaminase. Much less, three times less by cholesterol, but still a lot, and systolic blood pressure was related to body mass index, which is nothing new. We did another paper with Stavro Jacek showing that body uh, mass index, uh, that, that blood pressure increases body mass index because arm is wider and therefore takes more to compress <laughs> in measurement. Of. So this may be a, a measurement error. Uh, altogether, and you see the language is still here, so social status, social sector, so they're not excluded from the analysis, but simply they're not picked up as important by those general analysis. In stepwise multiple regression, none of the socioeconomic variables contributed anything significant. What's SES? Sorry? What's SES? The bottom line of the table. SES. Sorry, socioeconomic status. Yeah. Right, okay. So, I was wrong. Socioeconomic status actually contributed here. Is that a combination of the two? Well, how this needs to be read Stopwise multiple regression is It's an automatic inclusion. So the regression is calculated, the variable that contributes the, the most is included first. Then it's recalculated, and the next most significant variable is included. Then the third most significant variable, and finally the fourth, and so on. And the way to read it is this. If 
aladin transaminase contributes uh, 13.8%, and aladin transaminase plus systolic blood pressure together contribute 178, so 17.8, then systolic blood pressure alone, and it's on the printouts from the analysis, contributes 4%, the difference between 17.8 and 13.8. What was the, how was, which variable was SES picking up on because you mentioned it was a social category and an economic sector category, uh, so which? Uh, it was the socioeconomic status. It was the ten, ten, no, ten categories. That well, we can go back. These were the ten categories uh, here. Legislators, senior officials, and managers, professionals, technicians and associate professionals, clerks, service and shop workers skilled agricultural and fishery workers, craft and related trades, uh, plant and machine operators, elementary occupations, meaning cleaners, stevedores and so on, university students and apprentices in training. And so we just put those numbers there. <coughs> so, Let's see how much this contribution was. And, uh, when we took alanine transaminase, uh, systolic blood pressure, and cholesterol levels, they together explain 20.6% of total variance. And when socioeconomic status was added, which was producing significant effect, it was producing <coughs> significant effect of 1% in the previous table, the Percentage of variance explained went up to 21.4. Now, the difference between 21.4 and 20.6 is 0.8. So, roughly the same as in the previous analysis, about 1%. Um, what is also important is to admit that there is a lot of error variance, of unexplained variance. And the reason is, and there is a paper listed in the handout, by Wilson, I think. The reason is that various uh, physiological tests and other blood analysis tests show variation in the same person from one test to the other, which is not a result of lousy laboratory techniques, but simple diurnal or, or weekly fluctuations in those parameters. After all, all these consumers are just lining up at the conscription center for three days, and they're put up there in the military barracks, and they come and the, their blood is drawn and various other tests done at various times of the day, because the whole working day is devoted to taking the samples and so on. So, uh, we estimated that about 40% of the total variance, about 40%, so 0 0.40, would be error variance, which can be removed by testing, which we haven't done, because you have to test, retest, and so on, meaning that actually those contributions that we are capturing are higher than, or will be higher, when the error is removed. 
because we are explaining 13.8% or 20.6% of 60% of violence. The rest is, is error. So the alanine transaminase miraculously <laughs> became an important factor. And if we look at the socioeconomic status contribution, which is approximately 1%, uh, alanine transaminase explains 13 times more of variation in body mass index than socioeconomic status. So it's a fairly important thing. That's a horrible table, but <laughs> I've highlighted only three numbers here. These are correlation coefficients, also called partial correlation, when socioeconomic variables, which came up in the last table that we discussed, and blood pressure are kept constant. So that's, that's the analysis of correlation amongst everything else, while blood pressure and socioeconomic variable effects are removed by the calculation of partial correlation coefficients. And in this situation, alanine transaminase, that's a correlation coefficient. Previously, we had R squared. So that's a correlation coefficient, which is a squared, 0.35 squared is about 10%. So contributes about 10% of variation in BMI and cholesterol contributes uh, a bit less, about whatever, be about 5%. And then there are obvious correlations here which are not of our interest, like uh, eosinophils and lymphocytes. This is various types of blood cells. But these are the important things. When we have people, we can think about it this way, when all people are in the same socioeconomic category <coughs> and all those people have exactly the same blood pressure, body mass index will still vary with the level of alanine transaminase very significantly. Due to large sample size, all correlation coefficients are significant. There's no need to discuss which correlation was significant. No, you have 46,000 people, any small correlation coefficient is significant. So now, what is this alanine transaminase? Why is it coming up? Uh, it's an enzyme, which is also called, given a very simple name, serum glutamic pyruvic transaminase or alanine aminotransferase, it's found mostly in the liver. And what it does, and it's a reversible reaction, it transfers this group from glutamate to pyruvate and produces ketoglutarate and alanine, which is, alanine is an amino acid, one of the 20 basic amino acids in body proteins. Uh, what is important about this enzyme is that it participates because it helps to break down sugar in the liver. So it participates in glycolysis, but also, because it's a reversible reaction, in gluconeogenesis, when glucose is produced in the liver, mostly sometimes in the kidney, out of amino acids. This is the situation, for example, in starving people. When, as we said, their muscles are broken down to keep the body alive. Then the protein from the muscle is brought into the liver and amino acids from the proteins are converted back to glucose. 
uh, and there is some role in, of cholesterol in both also the cholesterol gluconeogenesis so that's why cholesterol came next what is very interesting is that levels of ALT or glutamic peruvic transaminase are heritable there was a Danish study which is in the handout showing that between 33 and 66 percent between one-third and two-thirds of variance in alanine transaminase levels is explained by the variance of its genetic background. So it's a fairly well heritable component. For illustration, the head shape has, has heritability about 60%. So it's as heritable as the shape of the head or the features of the face. Yes, yes, and the study is. Yeah. It's a familial. So, so it wouldn't, would it necessarily be genetic? It could also be lifestyle? It, it could be lifestyle. It could be lifestyle. To a certain extent, but they discussed it. Okay. Yet again, Denmark has a relatively homogeneous socioeconomic population and so on with the lifestyle. But obviously, it can be debated. Well, maybe, uh, maybe our sample was somehow biased, although it's nearly everybody in this age group, and so on. So in order to remove absolutely socioeconomic and cultural effects, what we did was we took two groups of only German-speaking conscripts. German-speaking conscripts of low socioeconomic status and German-speaking conscripts of high socioeconomic status. Status social categories one and two versus social categories above six. And the same uh, for stepwise multiple regression. As you see, sample sizes were reduced to 15,000 and 8,000 from 46. And yet the result was the same. In German speaking, also as economic status people, alanin transaminase explained 15% of variance in body mass index. Uh, the next best explanation was provided by cholesterol that added about 3% to variance, then lymphocytes added uh, just a fraction of a percentage point, and finally erythrocytes added another nearly 1%. In general speaking, high socioeconomic status, the contribution was somewhat less, only about 12%, but the order of contributions of other variables was the same. Well, we are still not very happy, so we selected only those conscripts that fitted the health definition uh, as used by various medical organizations. So they had normal body mass index, normal, normal levels of cholesterol, normal levels of alanine transaminase, and normal blood pressure. And even in this completely health-wise normal group, alanine transaminase still explained significantly 1% of variation. Admittedly only 1% because they were all cut and only normal levels of alanine transaminase were taken into account and so on. But the contribution was still significant and cholesterol produced another half a percent of the explanation. So very consistent pattern. Finally, we relied on the definition of the American Heart Association of what is 
healthy are people who are free from metabolic syndrome. <coughs> and this was again based on the levels of cholesterol and blood pressures and so on. And what we found was that alanine transaminase in this very healthy free from metabolic syndrome um, at least metabolic syndrome uh, findings in their blood tests and so on, alanine transaminase explained nearly 5%, 4.6% of variation and erythrocytes here because cholesterol was severely limited. Erythrocytes contributed another nearly 2% and creatinine, the, one of the substances that comes from the breakdown of muscles, uh, added another half a percent. But still, alanine transaminase took the foremost position. Well, alanine transaminase, that's the last four slides, yes? Just a quick question. Did you separate between um, HDL and LDL cholesterol when you did that analysis? No, because we did not have uh, those results. One of the drawbacks of having such a big sample is that we can't have in-depth observations. Uh, that's why I'm paying more attention to alanine transaminase than to the cholesterol and its contribution, because we can't distinguish. Uh, these are the last four slides of the talk. Uh, we took the group of people who by body mass index are defined as underweight, below 18.5 kilogram, uh, kilograms per meter squared. And there was, however small, but still a correlation between alanine or the pyruvate, they're just two names for the same thing, uh, between alanine the transaminase and uh, body mass index was a slight correlation. Within the group of people, it will move eventually, I hope. Yes. No. Too far. Within the group of people with overweight, there was a correlation. This is normal weight. These are people whose body mass indices are between 18.5 and 24.9. <coughs> as normal for body mass index as humanly possible, 2.5% of variation in this body mass index range is explained by alanine transaminase variation. In overweight people, sorry, yes, in overweight people, the same, 2.7% explained. And remember, this is a very narrow range of body mass index. And then we took everybody above 20, above 30, so about 29.9, and some people were fairly obese. Imagine a conscript of the body mass index 52. Uh, and there is still the same relationship, 2 point something percent, but visually, above 40 units of body mass index, it flattens out. So very thin people and extremely fat people do not show this relationship or show very little. But normal range and overweight and even obese up to about 40, so you can see, show a relationship between alanine transaminase and the body mass index. And uh, what is 
to be stressed is that the allergen transaminase level have this higher measurement error because the diurnal levels vary. So in other words, those relationships would be stronger had we captured exactly the same at the same time of the day into the same physiological conditions levels of allergen transaminase. And here is the last slide. As I said at the beginning, we are not all the same. When various people eat the same nutrients in same quantities and have the same amounts of physical effort and exercise, their bodies respond differently. And we must recognize human variation. We have a unit for variation. Biocultural, but so biological. And adapt treatments for obesity or overweight to individual circumstances of each person. Obesity is a disease, and its effective treatments should follow rules used to treat other diseases. And therefore, changing lifestyles may be enough, may not be enough. Maybe we will have to alter metabolism of some individuals at risk of obesity already. But these are just very beginnings. And now, what does it have to do with microevolution? Well, we did studies on microevolution of various bony things in the body because you can dig out bones of ancient Romans and so on, uh, which showed that there is actually an ongoing process. We just recently, in 2009, published a paper showing differences in the alterations of the sacrum, the bottom of the spine, between people in Australians born in the 1940s and 1980s. Human evolution is going on. And if we find microevolutionary changes in anatomical features, there are two papers about the arteries and several about bone growth, then it's possible that our liver physiology may also be actually changing. It is heritable. It may not be just heritable, but there is a heritable component. And there may be part of the obesity, I'm not saying everything, and it's my very risky hypothesis, but part of the obesity problem that appears at the end of 20th century may be a result of microevolutionary changes in metabolic parameters. But that's something that needs to be discussed. So thank you very much for your attention. I'm happy to discuss it.